Hello, welcome to Farmgate. I'm Finlo Castain. Throughout any normal year, food aid providers such as food banks and food kitchens ensure that nutritious food and meals are available for people and families in crisis and for the working poor. These facilities are often run by staff, but are usually supported by a multitude of community volunteers. Coronavirus has led to lockdown, the loss of work, jobs and income. It has forced people with little or no savings to turn to strangers, to outside charities and institutions just to be able to eat. Food aid providers, already working to capacity, have had to swiftly adapt their service models to cope with the influx of new, fearful, hungry and potentially infected people. In this programme, I'll speak to three people working to provide food at the front line of the social crisis caused by pandemic and by governmental attempts to contain the coronavirus. Later, I'll speak to Greg Silverman, the executive director of the West Side Campaign Against Hunger in New York City, and Mark Game, the chief executive of The Bread and Butter Thing, a community-led charity in Greater Manchester, UK. But first, I spoke to Dee Woods. Dee runs Granville Community Kitchen in Kilburn, London. She is the chair of the Independent Food Aid Network and she sits on the London Food Board. I asked her how coronavirus has affected Granville Community Kitchen. One, the demand has literally doubled and as this crisis deepens, we expect it to be worse. We're doing a lot more deliveries. We've always had a percentage of deliveries to people, especially um, older people and disabled people, but that has increased. We're also seeing an increase of people who aren't within the local borough. So we're delivering to, you know, Westminster and Camden and getting people from, from that borough as well, because there isn't anything else in, in, in the area except us. Is it still the same sort of people that are coming to you or have you seen a, a great change in the types of people that are coming to you? Um, I think we've seen a great change. We're seeing a lot more families and I think that's because they're not accessing the help through the free school meals. Um, a lot of those families are self-isolating and with the voucher scheme, you know, it means they have to travel to particular supermarkets, which we don't have locally and the food being offered by the schools wasn't necessarily what they might eat. We're also in an area with a lot of people who are no recourse to public funds. So, you know, that, that group is, is, is still coming, but we're seeing a lot more people, a lot more families, a lot more people who were working and can't access any finances. Um, they don't have any savings and they've literally run out of food. And, and the people who are coming now, the, the newer people who are coming in, do you think that these are largely people from the gig economy or are they people regularly in work in a different way, but they, they just simply physically aren't able to work as a result? of the pandemic lockdown? Um, yes, we're seeing a, a lot more people like that, definitely. What we have seen a reduction in and are a lot of people who were destitute and homeless and that's because um, the GLA and local authorities have been taking people off the street and putting them into temporary accommodation. But what we found is that we're delivering to those places because they haven't really sourced the 
supplier of food yet. So we're delivering food parcels to temporary hostels. So you've got two sort of parts of what you do. One is providing meals for people who come to you and the other is catering for packaging meals and, and taking them to people who are self-isolating. How do yeah. you how do you ensure that, um, that, that your staff and that the people who are coming to you and that you're delivering to uh, stay safe? We're following all the guidelines that have come down. So, you know, we're wearing PPE stuff. We're maintaining a two meter distance. We pack everything and we place it on a table so there's no contact. We have a high sanitization routine, um, which we had anyway because, you know, we're providing food, but just that we're extending it to other surfaces that we wouldn't normally do. So, like door handles, other areas where we wouldn't normally have to do that. Um, with deliveries, people are wearing masks and gloves and, and aprons. They don't enter anyone's homes. Um, they put the food on the doorstep and let people know that food has arrived and they step back two metres. And obviously you're on the front line of providing this really very basic fundamental service um, to people at this time of crisis. Do you feel confident that you're safe uh, in in these activities? Um, I think we're safe for now. My concern is as food supplies dry up and as it is, we're struggling to access food supplies, whether it's surplus or whether we're buying it because we are having to buy food as well, that, you know, people will start becoming violent. And I have heard from other, you know, food aid providers within the IFAN network that, you know, people are becoming unruly. So, you know, physical violence it is a concern. And why is that? Why are people becoming more violent? Is it because um, you're not able to provide the food that they're expecting or is there something else going on? Uh, I, I think it's just desperation. Right? When people are hungry and we deal with a lot of people who call up and say, I haven't eaten for several days. Right? So it is a matter of fear and insecurity that people will become violent. Now, you said that um, your food supplies in themselves are, are vulnerable. Where do you normally get food from and how has that changed as a result of the pandemic? Um, so with Granville Community Kitchen, we, we've had a mixture of sources. So we work directly with some farmers and sort of local growers to access food, as well as some that we've grown ourselves and some we buy and some from the as food surplus. So I think, you know, we're a bit more resilient than a lot of other projects, but it is a struggle right now to actually get, you know, enough food to feed sort of 200 people. You know, because we supply food on a weekly basis, we pack parcels that will support people weekly. You know, getting that volume of food several times a week is is difficult. 
So people, if they're coming to you and they're um, expecting to get food parcels to take away, then that's that's food that will last them um, across that, that week to come. Yes, and we have to bear in mind that for a lot of people, food insecurity also means that they don't have um, refrigeration or they don't have the means to cook. So because they're in a hostel or, you know, their landlords won't let them have anything beyond a microwave, so we have to have a mixture of food that we can give to people. And if people don't have refrigeration of their own or don't have um, cooking facilities, is, is there some um, community equivalent um, that they're able to use at all? Or is it simply that they just need to keep a carrier bag of food in, in their rooms and, and fend for themselves a bit? A combination. So we've managed to get, you know, more refrigeration equipment and we will store, you know, some stuff for, for people. We used to be able to have people come in and prepare food which they would then take back but we can't do that anymore so it is a dire situation and when you add in the medically vulnerable you know to to that mix it literally is a recipe for disaster and are there still people that uh, that you're aware of that you see in the community that are somehow falling through the gaps, um, not only in terms of your own provision, but council provision and other uh, other food kitchen provision? I think there'll always be people falling through the gaps and it tends to be people who are no recourse to public funds, um, people who would not trust the authorities and would be totally dependent on unrestricted projects like mine. And some of those people have disappeared. You know, they have gone to ground because they fear being detained. When you talk about people with no recourse to public funds, who do you mean? Refugees and other migrants who most often don't have the right to work and don't have the right to access any benefits. If, you know, migrants and refugees were able to work, that would lift them out of poverty and then they would not have to come to food banks and depend on charity for all essentials for their life. And, and do people have to pay for the services that you're providing or is it entirely free? It is entirely free. Now, when you talk about people potentially becoming more violent um, as food scarcity means that you're unable to provide the services at the volume that's required by people, what are your concerns there? How do you keep the people that are working with you safe? I mean, I've literally done a risk assessment, so we're set up in a way that if, you know, people do become violent, that we're able to shut ourselves in. Um, we only allow one person at a time to, you know, come to the points of collection and, you know, building we're in, it is pretty safe. So we are able to lock ourselves in if, if need be. So you're sort of building in those defences on yeah. the assumption that, um, that, that this level of violence may escalate in the future, which is really very worrying. Yeah. And I know there's some people who have asked, well, can we have the army or police present? But I don't think we're quite quite there yet. 
in the normal, you know, in, in the normal course of affairs, would you anticipate having um, problems and violence towards your, um, your staff and volunteers? Or is this something that you're fearing specifically as a result of the coronavirus um, pandemic? I mean, we have had people who have been quite, you know, violent or abusive. And we're fortunate that, you know, there's someone in centre who we can call on and who is a security specialist. So he's been really great at sort of defusing situations. I think, you know, if it is a group of people, we aren't prepared really to deal with that other than having to lock ourselves in and call the police. Yeah. Now, Dee, you've worked in and around the inner city for uh, for a long time. And I wonder if you were talking to a politician now and you were saying um, that you had the power to reform the food system and make access fairer for everybody. What would be your number one top priority? It would be putting cash in the hands of people, all right, which means national living wage should go up or we have um, some sort of universal income. Benefits as well need to be uprated. So child benefit is an easy one. Universal credit that needs uprated and to remove that five-week wait. I mean, all those measures, all right, in terms of reducing poverty need to come in. And then in terms of food access, right, there are literally areas in city, in the country that doesn't have access to good food. So we need to have markets and other ways of people being able to access good food. And what do you think the government thinks of organisations like your own? Do you think that food banks and food kitchens are built into government policy, that they just expect you to pick up the pieces? Or do you think that there is um, a real level of impetus within government to try to solve the kinds of problems that you've been outlining? I think they expect us to pick up in pieces and especially now, you know, they, they think, well, okay, we exist so we could handle all the food things and the government will handle sort of the identified medically vulnerable. And I don't think we should be existing in policy. We shouldn't have to exist. What we need in policy is a right to food legislation that would ensure that people are able to access adequate food, um, healthy food and culturally appropriate food. Dee Woods from Granville Community Kitchen. Chef Greg Silverman is the executive director of the West Side Campaign Against Hunger, which aims to provide access with dignity to a choice of healthy food and supportive services in New York City. I asked him to describe how the West Side Campaign Against Hunger operates. The West Side Campaign Against Hunger, better known as WISCA, created the Choice Model Pantry over two and a half decades ago. So the, the, the best practice model of how you deliver food with dignity to hungry people, in a sense, creating a grocery store that's free is the model we created. And we give out almost 50% fresh produce and on top of that, fresh milk and fresh, fresh meats and frozen meats. Canned goods and dried goods are part of it, but those are just staples, right? But that's not the only thing people need. And at the same time, we have an entire team of social service workers who make sure that beyond food, right, food is sort of the first step that people take when they, they need help, they come to us and they want food. But we try to find out what are all the public sector benefits, city, state, federal level that we can help people gain access to. And that's where actually the real strength of our work lies. 
we give away 1.7 million pounds of food a year. And who is it that you're catering for on a normal day-to-day basis, coronavirus apart? What sort of people are they that are that are coming and using the service that you provide? Over 60% of our customers are Latinx community members. So we have lots of recent immigrants who come to us. Over, uh, we have about 28% seniors. So lots of right hungry New Yorkers who have been here and paid their dues and worked their years and years and they just still can't make ends meet. Uh, lots of families with kids and right like if you sort of look at the 28% seniors and you look at you know the families with kids the the number of people who are the working poor who are of working age is a minority number but those people are all usually we find working they're working whether it's part-time jobs they're working off the books because they have you know different uh, immigration status issues our customers are also going to grocery stores right like the west side campaign against hunger and the emergency feeding system in general isn't meant to be the sole source of food for someone. It sort of helps the top up throughout the month. So whatever someone's benefits are, whatever work they money they have, in a sense, we help to stretch their food dollars further. So we know people are still going to grocery stores, they're going to soup kitchens, they're going to other locations to get food, but they're doing everything they can to like it's it's the hardest job in the in, in New York City, right? To be to be poor is the hardest job that exists. You travel around your city trying to pull things together to make sure you can feed your family through a through not one sim- single mechanism. Like we don't have some strong safety net. You know, thinking that there's over 700 food pantries in New York City alone. I mean, that's that's this ragtag and true system of feeding. And by the way, over 30% of those pantries have closed in the last month because of the coronavirus. So if you think about that, that tells you how weak and frayed the social safety net is in America, let alone New York City. You've taken us into into the next question, which is, well, how has coronavirus uh, changed the provision that's being demanded of you? I mean, I think we're just starting to scale up. I think, you know, the big issue for most pantries and frontline organizations is more operational at first. So, for example, by giving out 50% fresh produce, when that produce comes in by the pallet, you know, we go through it, make sure it's all good, separate, throw out anything that's bad, re-bag it up so it's ready to go for customers. That is taken care of by 1,700 volunteers a year. You know, a month ago, that entire volunteer base was gone. Corporate volunteers ended, school volunteer groups ended, religious institution volunteer groups ended. And then it was decided for safety reasons, we need to just stop having volunteers altogether. We're just bringing them back. But so we had to move to a lot more shelf-stable product that was ready to go. And so that, you know, we started spending another about $10,000 a week on food alone that we're buying, not not getting donated. Had to bring in more contracts, some more contract staff to help support this work. So those pieces, getting pallet jacks and and carts and things that cost money and the safety precautions for our team, making sure, you know, folks have masks, that we have tents for when we're outside because of the, like today's rain that, and we also know we have staff who have already had staff who have contracted the virus and who are home for 14 days and some whose spouses have contracted the virus and therefore are home caring for them. So we've had decreased staff capacity, decreased volunteer capacity, increased need and having to shift the model. I, I wouldn't say that scale is the first thing that's happening, but it's staying staying afloat and being able to do the good work and not stop so that our customers have been depending on us for years can continue to depend on us. And that's not even talking about the coming crush of unemployed people in the service industry as as they're as they go from, you know, even if they got two weeks severance to 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 next step, they're gonna apply for unemployment, which they have to wait. And then for food stamps and they have to wait about a month to do that. So it's gonna take a while for that crush to hit us and hopefully we'll be ready to scale up. Uh the community is is got our back, right? And we we are finding amazing support happening right now. 
Luckily, we have more funding coming in uh, in a very strong way right now. But we know if history repeats itself, whether it's from Hurricane Sandy or in 2008 or 9-11, like these, these instances, funding comes in for a series of for many weeks and then it drops off. And the question will be, you know, two months from now, when we go back to our key supporters for our normal money funds for the year ahead, are they still with us? How has the way that you actually give food to people changed as a result of coronavirus? Yeah, we we created the choice model uh, globally. And, and now we're back to giving pre-bagged kits of food. There is not a choice for customers right now. We're creating one model and we give out that for each person gets the same. So kit. it's, it's I mean, the they same get, regardless. They get, five bag. they get a bag filled with produce, fresh vet, with vegetables that's fresh and canned. They get a bag of fruits that's fresh and a couple canned. They get a bag of whole grains that's usually some fresh bread, some pop, a different type of whole grain pasta, a rice, a cereal. There's a bag of proteins that's anything from you know dried beans, canned beans, uh, canned fish, canned meat. We're, we're still figuring out how to re-bring back our frozen meats just because it's a question of more of refrigeration uh, capacity right now. And then the milk right now is shelf-stable milk or shelf-stable alternative dairy. And in every community, you know, around the world, there are always people that fall through the gaps. How successful are you at the moment in picking up those people who might otherwise be falling through the gaps? I mean, that's our entire business model, right? For the last 40 years is there's no real safety net for hungry New Yorkers. And so we fill in the gaps, right? Like in a perfect world, and this is in a perfect world, which truthfully is the per- a perfect storm uh, before coronavirus even, of those people who no matter what are still not going to have enough to eat for themselves and their family. And so we step in to make sure that we can get them extra food. And I think in coronavirus, that's just, it's accentuating every crack in the system. We, we, we can compare different countries at some level and say like, wait, what's happening when you lose your job in the U.S.? You lose your job, right? What, what, what kind of benefits? Are you, like, what kind of benefits are you really going to be to get right away? And it's not the same as you have in other countries, right? We're 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 desperately and sadly behind in many ways when it comes to a safety net for for our customers. Like having worked, right? I worked for the city of London for a number of years uh, in the UK, and so I, I know what people in the UK can complain about the a decreasing safety net in the UK. But these are two separate worlds of sad safety nets. Uh, you know, people are on their own here. And so how we get them access is to fill, you know, in a sense, get them some food and help them navigate an incredibly bureaucratic social safety net that doesn't give that much, but it's really difficult to get access to it. So our team is really great. Our experts at helping people navigate the system so they can get the supports they need. Are there lessons that you think New Yorkans or, or people across America, around the world, should really be picking up on and, uh, and learning as a result of, uh, of things they're discovering throughout the pandemic period? I'm a chef who, who talks a lot about when people are hangry, right, and, and, and how they make bad food choices when they're hangry and how they act out when they're hangry. The truth of the matter is most people with, with means have never truly been hangry and they've never been food insecure and, and they still get angry. And in an instance like coronavirus, all these people are going back to eating the worst foods possible because they're stressed out. Well, we got 40 plus million people in America who are on food stamps who, who have been stressed out getting meals well before COVID hit. And it might be a wake-up call to those with means and those in power to understand like how difficult it is to be in poverty and therefore like what needs to be put in place to help 
lift people out of it because I don't think we really truly understand how difficult it is. You know, people are complaining now about they're going to run out of toilet paper, but they're still able to purchase toilet paper. You know, they, they'll pay any amount for it, but they have the means. And it, it's just it's a, a chance for people to understand a little bit what it feels like to not have what you need and to be stressed every day. You use the term hang- hangry. I'm guessing that's um, hungry and angry. Is that right? Yeah. 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 And so that's that's kind of saying, well, if if people are hungry, uh, if people are living in poverty, then there are just so many extra emotions and uh, and mental health challenges which are layered on top of that, which make life difficult just in the day to day. But climbing out of that living trough that people have uh, have found themselves in, it becomes even more difficult. Totally. And. I think we we you know we see this every day. Our customers are stressed I, I, when they come in to visit, and we that's why we make sure we have a you know we put out food, we put out coffee, we put out bagels, we put out different foods because you know they're hungry and they need help. But I, I also think just it's it's a chance to like we're seeing that we're able to sort of test out, innovate on new ideas, and it's not about doing things alone, right? It's about partnership and collaboration. And, and I think we we have to use this as an opportunity to create a new landscape for for how we we feed hungry people, right? and how we feed our community and the community is everyone. And we've been doing it. Like when I said like 700 food pantries exist in New York city, like, I don't know what that means. Like why do we have 700 ad hoc, not part of a formal system method for feeding people that like, this seems like there's a real problem. Obviously we've been at it for 40 years in emergency feeding. Emergencies don't last 40 years. That's not, that's not the definition of an emergency. That's the definition of a failed system. Greg Silverman from the West Side Campaign Against Hunger. Mark Game is chief executive of the Bread and Butter Thing, which takes surplus food given by industry and redistributes it through community hubs throughout Greater Manchester. I started by asking him just how do these food surpluses occur? I suppose the easiest way of trying to think about this is if you ever try to uh, have a dinner party or just even make a meal for people, you've always got to think about just how much food you're going to make to make sure everybody's satisfied. And some people will want seconds and some people won't want the volume of food that you've made. The retailers and the supermarkets have the same problems every day, but they're trying to feed over 60 million people in the UK every day. And that's a real challenge. So although they are very sophisticated and they have a lot of forecasting intelligence, etc., around this nowadays, there's still one or two percent of fluctuation. Um, a really easy example is if the long range forecast is telling us all I should say pre-COVID, um, that there's there's going to be a nice sunny weekend ahead and we'd all start planning barbecues, then the retailers would all start ordering the beef burgers and the sausages, etc. But then if there's a freak storm and it rains and nobody buys the food, all that food becomes surplus. It's still on the shelves. Nobody's taking it. And so pre-COVID, how would that food be presented to your members or, or the users? We use a model that's very much like a veg box scheme. So a veg box scheme would look at what is seasonal and regional and is available at the time. And they would push that selection onto the end user. We do the same, but with surpluses. So what we always try and do is do three bags of food, one of covered goods, uh, cereals, packets, uh, one of fridge goods, such as dairy or protein or ready meals and one of fruit and veg. What we don't guarantee anybody is that 
we will be able to always provide them with exactly what they want. If people are picky and need to be need more choice in their life, then our model's not for them. But if you can have some elasticity of thought around what you could do with food that is presented to you that is simply surplus, and that can look like potatoes, sweet potatoes, cauliflowers and oranges one week, and the following week it could be onions, carrots and oranges. And are people for paying example. for are people paying for the service that you provide yeah. in the same way that you yeah. buy a veg box? It's just that it's cheaper. Absolutely. So people pay for our service. Generally speaking, it's £7.50 for three bags of food that uh, a retail value would be around £40. And so that helps to uh, to fund the services that you're providing, I imagine. It's part of your business model. Exactly. It, it covers our running costs. And what's the scope of the, uh, the Bread and Butter project? Because it's not just one outlet, is it? So we currently have 28 hubs in Greater Manchester and we have two running in Darlington as well in the Tees Valley now. The, I, I guess the scope is that this is very much a supply-driven model. So the more food that we can unlock from the food industry and uh, redistribute, the larger we can grow. How has coronavirus and the pandemic changed things? The bread and butter thing before COVID was very much a community-led organisation. So we would take the food in our vans and we would encourage community volunteers to come and help us in their community projects across Greater Manchester to come and pack the food with us. Sadly, post-COVID, what we've had to do is retrench. We have to recognise that some of our volunteers and people in the community were vulnerable. So we have to now pack all of those bags in the warehouse. So we're much more of a crisis food delivery service than a community-led service now. Obviously, there's been a, a really substantial change in the way that um, supermarkets have been um, ordering their own food for their own retail and the way that people have been buying that food. Have those surpluses changed as a result of the pandemic? Yes and no. So, uh, yes, they've continued. So, um Certainly within fresh and chilled food and produce, if anything, there is more of that food available. I, I, I think the area that everybody's focused on at the moment is ambient food, tins and packets, due to the stockpiling and the unforeseen rush of demand and the, and the kind of just-in-time forecasting that everybody has adopted over the past five years or so, that's created a shortage of ambient. However, to compensate for that, there is far more fresh and chilled food available because nobody knows what the new normal is. So how on earth do you forecast for it? All of us were eating 35% of our weekly calories out within takeaways or restaurants or cafes. Now we have to acquire all of, the, all of that food or the majority of that food to actually eat within the household. So the supermarkets just don't know what the new normal looks like anymore. And of course, people are being discouraged from going to their retailers any more than is strictly necessary. And so perhaps stocking up on those things that will uh, survive in the store cupboard, but you can only buy so many lettuce <laughs> before you expect them to go off. So perhaps uh, that's uh, that's contributed to stores having rather more of the fruit and veg 
um, left available for you to use at the end of the day. Yeah, exactly. And, and there is a number of issues along with that as well. So we don't tend to get our food directly from the supermarket itself. It tends to be the supply chain or the factories and industry that supply the supermarket. But I can tell you at a supermarket level, they are seeing a lot of charities that no longer can come along and collect that food. So there's there's been a uh, 40% change in the landscape of charities. And there were shortages over the last two or three weeks, but all of the shortages have now normalized, but the charities haven't quite re-engineered or come back to the surface. So now there is a problem with quite a bit of food available to redistribute at store level and not enough charities yet to um, satisfy that demand. And how are you able to help with that? Have you been sort of stepping in um, and, and, and growing your own output as a result? Yeah, well, we absolutely are. So as part of our addressing of COVID, we have started to team up with the local government and local authorities around Greater Manchester to start home delivery services. So there's a lot of furloughed teams out there uh, from leisure centres or offices, etc., that are fit and well and sat at home that are looking to volunteer. And these guys are coming along and delivering on behalf of, for example, Manchester City Council, food to people that are shielding or, or are in crisis. So what we're doing now is rather than increasing the number of hubs that we work with, we're increasing the number of home delivery services by improving the packing operation that we have within the warehouse. So at the moment, we're growing almost 50% week on week. Do you have a sense of, in terms of volume or scale, where you were a month ago, where you are now and where you expect to be? Sure. So the first two are relatively straightforward. So we were we were dealing with around 1,200 families pre-COVID. Last week, we did, I think it was 1,700 families that we fed. However, where we want to get to is significantly higher than that. So we... Uh, this weekend are quite literally moving from a 5,000 square foot uh, warehouse to a new 35,000 square foot premises so that we can hugely increase our capacity to take more inbound food and to create more packing opportunities because we have so many more opportunities with food and so many more volunteers. We can increase our capacity to meet the demand that all the local government agencies are facing to create more food parcels for people at home. And have you found that your customers um, have, have changed, the demography of your customers has changed? Yeah, so we, we, we would describe uh, our demographic as the working poor. So they tended to be not quite in crisis, but almost on the cusp of it. So it, it didn't take much to actually tip them over the edge. A broken boiler, a broken washing machine could do it. And that would start a cycle where they would need a doorstep lender to get out of that crisis. But then the doorstep lender and their interest rates mean that they can no longer afford and the cycle starts. So we've managed to be able to create savings for our, our, our members then. I, th I think it's possibly too early to tell right now about the demographic of our current uh, members, but it looks like more of the same because I, I think one of the interesting points that um, not enough people are talking about yet is that yet again, it tends to be the worse off that suffer the most because of the conditions they have to live in, 
um, the lack of access to general information, be that because they're technically isolated or they're living in a really small flat uh, and they're living on top of each other. So there, there is a, a statistic to look at which hasn't really been addressed yet around just how affected the worse off tend to be in such pandemics because it does tend to be that they don't have the same resilience or the abilities to cope purely and simply because of those circumstances that are not their fault. It's a remarkable illustration that you use that you know somebody's boiler breaks and that tips them from uh, a situation where uh, they're coping just about day to day and then suddenly that extra um, bit of expenditure that's needed tips them over the edge and just means that it's impossible to cope. I mean coronavirus coming through, stopping people from working, um, people um, having to rely on savings that they simply don't have. I mean this is just a wrecking ball to the kind of communities that you serve. Sad but true and we can only see what that looks like in the months to come. Do you think that there are positives that could come out of this and in terms of trying to design or persuade policymakers to design better policies as we go forward? Yeah, I do, I do see that. Um, and, I, and I don't think it's just the food system. I, I think that I don't think any of us will go back to how we were. I, I think that there will be so many changes and you can already feel the landscape changing in most sectors. But from a, from a supply chain perspective, I think everybody can see that there needs to be some more resilience within that supply chain. I think the way that the uh, retailers are responding at the moment and reducing the range that is available of certain products, etc. I think that's a really good thing. I think that will build in some resilience. And I think that there will be more strategies like that yet to come. That may mean that we also become more citizens and think about civic duty more than being a, a casual consumer, shall we say, because we are all thinking about the food that we eat currently. We are all thinking about supplies and we are getting a closer relationship back to where it should have been with food because we still waste an incredible amount of food domestically. Mark Game from the Bread and Butter thing. Coronavirus has exposed some of the many cracks and stresses in our food system. Those working at the front line of food provision deserve our support and admiration, not only during this crisis, but as we emerge and until governments sufficiently prioritise the eradication of poverty and hunger in our societies. I'd like to thank my guests, Dee Woods, Mark Game and Greg Silverman. If you've enjoyed listening, please come back and listen to more. Tell your friends, like us, review us and share our links. Farmgate is a partnership project for Farmwell and FAI Farms and you can join the conversation on Twitter by searching for Farmgate Podcast. I've been Finlow Castain. Bye for now.